Merry Christmas. Zach, well, thank you. Let's try that again. Merry Christmas. That's pretty good. You know, it's a more interesting expression than we've always probably acknowledged, this, this idea of Merry Christmas, isn't it? Because we say it all the time. It's like, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. But think about it for a moment. I mean, just, just for a moment, can we really say things like Merry Christmas and peace on earth, goodwill to men, without being accused of being spiritually superficial or glib? And I'm not trying to be like Debbie Downer on Christmas, because I love Christmas. But but I also don't want to just say things glibly because it's traditional without really examining what we're saying and, and what we mean by what we're saying. So when we say Merry Christmas, you know, could be true, could be hard. There's a lot of people who suffer at Christmas time. There's a lot of people who are mourning at Christmas time. I know it's unpopular to acknowledge the grave consequences of the fall during the Christmas season, but indulge me just for a few moments. We live in a world marked by injustice, don't we? Economic exploitation, sex trafficking, racial discrimination are some examples, not all the examples, but some of the examples of injustice that exist in our world and also in our country. And I get that most of us don't suffer those things, but there are plenty who do. And so Merry Christmas kind of depends on who you're saying it to at times. We also live in a world that is marked by violence. Violence is on the rise at a micro level, individual violence against violence, you know, violence one person to another. That's on the rise, but it's also on the rise at a macro level. And in fact, there's a chart that I'd like to show you. I, I ran into this this week. This is incredible. This, uh, that says pairwise conflicts, which is kind of a fancy way of saying wars between people who, who have borders. So it's not civil wars and it's not conflicts within countries. This is conflict one country to another. And from 1870 to 1990, this graph shows us that pairwise conflicts, wars for the rest of us, have, ri have risen about 2% every year. From 1870 to 1990, there are 2% more pairwise conflicts each and every year. Let me tell you what that looks like. From 1870 to 1930, let me start over. From 1870 to 1913, that meant that there were about six pairwise conflicts per year. That's all, six pairwise conflicts. By the time that we were in between World War I and World War II, that number had jumped up to 17 pairwise conflicts per year. During the Cold War, the world was experiencing 31 pairwise conflicts per year. And during the 1990s, and that's as far as my research goes, and it's not really my research, but I guess I found it online, so in that sense it is my research. There were 36 pairwise com conflicts per year in the 1990s. So, so war is trending up. And it's really, now, it's really amazing. There's a little bit to offset this trend. There are about four times as many countries now as there were in 1870. And, and so the increase might be diminished by the, the number of opportunities for countries to go to war with other countries because that number has grown. But it's still a little bit alarming that we have gone from six conflicts to 36 conflicts per year. 
Here's something else that's interesting. The Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution predicted that with science and economic growth, war would be diminished. If, if science rather than religion became the ultimate authority, cooler heads would prevail. A lot of people blamed religion for all the wars. And so war then would diminish. Also, the Industrial Revolution said that with economic prosperity across the world, and, and we are a richer world today than we ever have been, the reason, the motivation for war would decrease because poor people wouldn't try to take other people's resources fearing they had no other options. Well, now we, we do have more options and, and we don't need to go to war as much as perhaps we did 100 years ago. And yet war has nonetheless increased. Our decreased motivation for war by the Enlightenment, by the Industrial Revolution, seems offset by our increased capability to go to war. We're richer now. We can build more bombs. I know what you're thinking. All of this is depressing, and I don't want to come to Grace Bible Church next week to celebrate Christmas. <laughs> this is horrible. What, what is this guy doing? He's trying to ruin Christmas. This is Scrooge who's talking to us. It's not really the case at all. I just don't want us to glibly say, Merry Christmas, as if not to acknowledge the fact that this world isn't as it should be, isn't as it should be and as Christians should hope it would be. Now, to be clear, I think there's a great way to say Merry Christmas without being glib. I think there's a way to say Merry Christmas without just being people who don't suffer, failing to acknowledge those who do suffer. I think there is a wonderful way to say Merry Christmas as Christians, in fact, we cling to a hope in Jesus Christ. And it is by that very hope in Jesus Christ that we are able to say Merry Christmas without being glib and without being superficial. And I think one of the ways to get at that point is by looking at this, this great Christmas song, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. Really good reminder of the hope that we have for the world and ultimately through Jesus. Now, I want to tell you a few things about It Came Upon the Midnight Clear. Uh, show the slide now of, this is Edmund Sears. He wrote it, and uh, he's a really interesting guy. He wrote it in 1849. Uh, he is an interesting cat, and I would, not, I would not totally prescribe to his theology, okay? He is a Unitarian minister up in Massachusetts, 1849, when he writes this. And so as a Unitarian, he believes that all roads lead to heaven. And, and as a biblicist, we are not down with that at all. But that's who he was, and he's an interesting guy. Let me show you the lyrics to this song in their entirety. And we're going to sing this after the song, not in its entirety and a little bit more of a modern rendition. But, but look at the words and what I'd like you to do. We're going to go slowly through this. I want you to look for themes and, and ultimately the biggest theme that you're going to find in the lyrics to It Came Upon the Midnight Clear. Tell me what you find as the major theme. And I'm going to try to go slowly because last week I heard I went too quickly. And it's because I'm a slow reader and so I'm insecure and I overcompensated. So <laughs> we're going to take forever today. Settle in, people.
So what'd you see? What, what's this song about? The, the major themes here. Specifically, let's ask this question. It might get us on the trail of it. What came upon the midnight clear? It, it wasn't the birth of Jesus, was it? The text never talked about the birth of Jesus. What came upon the midnight clear, if you looked at the lyrics closely, was the angel's song. And it wasn't the angel singular, it wasn't his song, it was the heavenly host's song. This is a reference to Luke chapter 2, where the angels come giving a promise of peace. Look at Luke Luke chapter 2. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. We'll look at verses 13 and 14. This is what Edmund Sears was referencing when he wrote this great song. And I, I love this song. You'll, you'll hear me today as you're turning. You'll hear me today uh, speak of some things that aren't in this song. That doesn't mean I don't love this song. I, I'm just saying it's not the whole story. But look with me at Luke chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, meaning a bunch of angels, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense that Edmund Sears would write this, especially in light of the fact that he wrote it in 1849, which is the year after the Mexican-American War had been ended by the Treaty of Hidalgo. It had been a brutal war that had gone on a very long time, and Edmund Sears, according to most historians, was tired of war. And so he's talking about a world that is weary, and, and he's calling the world to remember the angel's song promising peace. It makes sense. It also makes sense because Edmund Sears was a Unitarian. So the birth of Jesus probably isn't quite as big a deal to a Unitarian, which says that all roads lead to heaven, as it is to us who say that Jesus is our only hope. And so he's not so much talking about the birth of Jesus as he is about the angels proclaiming a peace that is to come, a peace that'll enable all people who are all going to heaven anyway to get along with each other. Let's look a little more closely at verse 14. The angels say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom his favor rests. Now, historically and traditionally, we kind of take that in three parts, don't we? We talk about glory to God in the highest and we talk about peace on earth and then we talk about peace on earth, and then goodwill to men. So it's, it's glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, and goodwill to men. And we see those things as, as three different things. But if you look at the ESV, which is a very good translation of the Greek text, you're going to see that it's actually only two things. The first is glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. What the angels are saying is, what is going to happen is going to bring glory to God in the ultimate sense. And then the other thing that it will bring is peace on earth, but not goodwill to men. Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. So it's not goodwill to all men. Peace on earth 
to those with whom God is pleased, to those who are the recipients of God's grace, because that's the only way we please God is through the grace of God. Peace on earth comes because grace comes with it, and by that, God is pleased with us. Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth on those who are marked by the grace of God. Two things are promised by the angels. Now, how will those things happen? It's not in the song, but it's in Luke chapter 2. Look at Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. And the angel said to them, them being shepherds out in the field, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Christ, the Lord. That's how all this glory will come. And that is also how this peace on earth among those upon whom God's favor rests will come. It's Jesus. The the kid who's going to be born in the city of David, which is Bethlehem, the, the guy who's also going to be called the Christ, also translated the Messiah, and by the way, he is the Lord. He is the ruler of the whole world. Has that happened yet? Have we seen this glory and have we seen this peace, the peace that the angels promise. Luke, last week, and when I say Luke, I mean Luke Brauner, not the author of this book, but Luke Brauner talked as he was leading us in worship about an already not yet tension. And you might have heard that if you've read theology before, but if you haven't, settle in on it because it's really gonna matter. We live in an already not yet tension. And here's what I mean by that. We live in an already in that those marked by grace have peace in a world that is marked by war. Let me say that again. That has already happened in the sense that those of us who have been marked by grace experience that peace even as we live in a world that is marked by war, and increasingly so. But it's not yet tension in that one day Jesus will return to vanquish Satan and at that point war will cease and peace will ultimately and circumstantially reign throughout this earth. So it's an already not yet tension. Can you feel the weight of that? That's what we celebrate in Advent. We, we celebrate the fact that Jesus came in the incarnation we celebrate Christmas but we also long for him coming again to fully establish that which is partially established now and leaves us in this already not yet tension. Make sense? I hope so. I'll take your silence as enthusiastic participation. (laughs) What disposition, and this is what I thought about a lot this week, what disposition should we adopt in the meantime? If we are going to live in this already not yet meantime, what should our disposition reflect? What will glorify God in our disposition? Look, I think it's absolutely fine and becoming to long for Christ's return, but not in a way that hides the peace 
and the joy that comes from peace that we already have, that we already have been given. So, so it's great to long for Christ's return, but not, not as Dower Dan, not, not as doomsday guy like, oh, this world is going to hell in a handbasket. You know, I just don't know that that's what God wants when the angels come to proclaim the Christ who has come. I bring you good news, great news, great joy. When God commands us to rejoice in the Lord always, he's not talking about being dour and just always being down on the world. Is the world jacked up? Yeah, it's jacked up. But God in the midst of this has given his redeemed this incredible peace. We've been made right. We've been reconciled to God by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we live in a world that is marked by war, and the thing that distinguishes us is the fact that we have been marked by peace. And, and that is fun, and that is a joy, and, and it is not insincere. That is not a Pollyanna view of the world. Yes, the world is still a mess, but God is at work, and that is our hope, and that is our joy and we know peace. Faith in Jesus should produce hope and joy and even tenacity that we would continue in hope and joy and in loving God and in loving other people. Even in the midst of this fallen world, faith in Jesus produces hope and joy and tenacity, not despair or passivity. We, we don't just give up and go form holy huddles, wait for the rapture. It's not how it works. That's not what the incarnation was designed to produce. I wonder if our cultural emphasis today on authenticity has somehow excused us into passivity or even excused us to wallow in despair. Let, let me explain what I mean by that a little bit. I think God's glory should be our ultimate goal more than authenticity. But, but our culture really believes in authenticity. Like, you can be anything you want as long as you're sincere, right? That's, that's what culture is kind of giving us today. As long as you're sincere, man, there's, there's no other rules, this has all sorts of ramifications, and, and they're not Christmas ramifications, so we're going to go on. But is authenticity really the ultimate goal, or is it God's glory? I'm all for authenticity. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I don't think Christians should be insincere in any way, shape, or form. I, I do not like plastic Christianity at all. But instead of wallowing in circumstantial despair, doesn't God call us to raise our eyes and to hope again and again and again and to rejoice again and again and again despite our circumstances and his goodness to work in our circumstances? So maybe our authenticity should be displayed in a striving for God's glory in the midst of a bad circumstance rather than just going, man, this is just who I am. And so I am therefore a victim 
of my circumstances, but I'm authentic. Everyone pat me on the back. Do you see what I'm saying there? It's, it's something that is so emphasized in our culture today that I wonder if we have lost our balance as Christians. What disposition should we adopt in the meantime? One of hope, one of joy, one of tenacious love for God and other people, even in this fallen world. Next question is, what job should we direct all this hope, joy, and tenacity toward? Like, what specifically should we be doing? This will sound like an oxymoron. We should live in peace because that is what Jesus has afforded us. We should live in peace as we fight for God's purposes in us and on earth. We should live in peace because that is what Jesus created for us. As we fight tenaciously for the purposes that God has in us and in this world. Let me say this another way. If God is truly a God of justice, and I hope that all of us would affirm that he is a God of justice. If God is a God of justice, his people, the the people who have been redeemed for his glory, should fight, therefore, against injustice. What are we talking about here? I mean, we're talking about the stuff we talked about earlier, economic exploitation, sex trafficking, racial discrimination. We're talking about any other injustice we see as well. We should always be people fighting for God's glory in this world. Ultimately, we're not going to accomplish it. Jesus coming back will accomplish it. But that doesn't mean that we as the body of Christ shouldn't be caring about the things that Jesus cares about. Look, we talked about one of those earlier. Foster care and adoption. I think it'd be a hard argument to make that God does not care about those things. Therefore, we should care. That's what Trent was saying. This isn't just like Merry Christmas and we're done here. This is Merry Christmas. Now let's get to work because we are merry. But because there is a peace that that has transformed us. There, There is a grace that empowers us. So Christmas isn't just like it ends with me. Christmas is the Lord came near and he has made me a conduit of his grace, a representative of his purposes. And so we rest in the peace that we have and we fight for God's purposes. Think about what God intended and modeled in the incarnation. This is the same point, just made a different way and in conclusion. The angels saying, Peace on earth among those who enjoy God's favor. Peace on earth for those who have received this immense grace that God has bestowed. The intent of the incarnation, therefore, was peace. So by that, we can say in sincerity, Merry Christmas. He's changed everything in us. So Merry Christmas. It's basically a, hey, grace to you. It's a reminder God came near when we were all messed up and he has made it right between us and him. Merry Christmas, people. 
But we also know that Jesus came to transform the world. And he left us as the body of Christ to manifest his purposes. But that's part of the incarnation. Jesus did not come to earth because everything was okay. Jesus came to earth because we and everything in the earth was all jacked up. And so it doesn't end just with Merry Christmas. It's let's get to work. Let's be the redeemed who proclaim and demonstrate redemption in this world. So our job is to continue what Jesus started by the incarnation. He came to redeem the world. Our job is to manifest that redemption in how we live and how we work for justice and all the other things that God cares about. Merry Christmas. Now let's get to work. I kind of think that's what we should think of when we think of Christmas. The Lord came near and he changed me and he's changing everything. One day he'll come back. It'll be awesome when he does. But let's represent in the meantime. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to not just rest in your benevolence and become soft in your benevolence. But Father, I pray that this, this amazing grace and the finished work of Jesus Christ, who was our only hope for salvation, would so penetrate my soul and also my friend's souls here that our lives would be marked not just by comfort and merriment, but by a passion for your kingdom purposes. God, I, I pray that the incarnation would mean more than just me being happy. I pray, God, that we as a people would demonstrate redemption in, in our holiness, but also in the things beyond our personal holiness that we value and therefore strive for. God, may it be true. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.